All right, so if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a sermon that I've been waiting for to get to, and we've been, I feel like I've preached it already like four times, but that's okay. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one in the seat or the pew in front of you, so please grab that. Philippians chapter 2, kind of halfway through your New Testament. The Bible will kind of look like that if you don't know where it is. As you're turning there, we're doing verses 1 through 11. So let me read this. This is actually the one I'm reading from. is from the New Revised Standard Version. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in a form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Amen. So when I was a kid, I grew up in the woods. I'm not that old, but my generation is the awkward one that shared kind of the childhood of Generation X with the introduction of all the media and internet and things later in my childhood that introduced me to kind of be almost like the millennials. So they call us zennials. We're stuck in the middle, right? We have kind of both a little bit of a both experience there. My childhood did not consist of tablets and cell phones and texting or social media or Facebook or anything of the sorts. We had a single television in our home and the expansive cable television of 12 stations with our bunny ears, with the antenna wrapped up, you know what I'm talking about, with the aluminum foil, you know, yeah. The woods were the primary place where I lived my childhood. My parents still live in the home, and our property consisted of around uh, two or three acres, but my neighbors in the back had dozens of acres with a cow pasture that was later a horse uh, pasture with some turkeys running around. Uh, The tall, thin Georgia pines kept out most of the sunlight in our property, a small creek had over the course of many generations carved its way through the woods and became an endless source of playtime through my childhood for my brother and I. Sometimes a storm would come in and knock down a few trees, and they would land over the creek, creating more endless funds of, you know, knights versus dragons and G.I. Joes versus whomever, and running endlessly across the bridge in battle against our foes, sticks serving as swords and anything else we could find to, or other weapons. I mentioned my childhood in the woods that we played in because I try most years to drive my own family down to Georgia and allow my own children to romp and stomp through the same exact woods that I did. 
I want them to be with their grandparents and to experience the bliss of long days wandering in those thick woods that their own father roamed, and who knows, maybe even my grandchildren will do the same. But however, when I take my children there now, I see something that was not true when I was a child. It's a bit overgrown now. My parents, not now without little children in their home, aside from a few days a week watching my brother's kids, who are still very young, the woods for almost 20 years now have been absent of my brother and I's little feet. Before we visit each year, my father does the hard work of trimming back and cutting down many of the weeds that are grown all beside the creek and everywhere else, opening up for my kids to have the space to run around. Now, when I was a kid, our feet ran through that area so much that the weeds never had a chance. I only remember it being mostly bare dirt floor beside the creek with occasional weed here or there. On the way down, our feet over the course of time had stomped down a path through the downward sloping yard that had a few roots or there from the surrounding cedar trees that served kind of as steps on the way down. However, green weeds were rarely seen. When they popped up their head through the soil, the soles of our shoes would ensure that they would never see the light of day again. But today, it's a different story. As my brother's children grow older, as they live close by, perhaps they will create new paths open to that dirt floor by wearing out those weeds, exposing that red Georgia clay that lies beneath the once overgrown area. But we will revisit this path metaphor at the end of our time today. But in many ways, I felt that I have preached this sermon to you guys like four times, okay? Uh, I've used this famous passage as this interpretive tool kind of for this whole entire letter to the Philippians. The reason why I mentioned this, these run-down paths through my old Georgia woods in my childhood, which are now a bit overgrown, is that almost with, I can say, sadness, not quite despair or anything, but just kind of a heaviness and a sadness, I got to say that much of the public reputation of Christianity is becoming farther from what I see in the book of Philippians. Now, Jesus forged a new path when he became a man, when he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a new path for humanity to walk. This humble, this lowly path that he has invited us to tread has become, I think, a little overgrown with the weeds of strength, of power, and not of Christ. It has become become overgrown with the weeds of these these us versus them mentalities of judgmentalism, of allowing of much pride and arrogance to seep into us things not of Christ. There is, I believe, many reasons for this, reasons I do not have the time to get into, different sermons for different days, but what I do want to point out to some of you who, if you are a thinking person, maybe you've been listening to the recent sermons and are a little confused or have questions. I say with full confidence that this passage in Philippians chapter 2 is the very reason why Jesus calls us to be, well, one of the very reasons why Jesus calls us to be his disciples. If we were to traverse this path that he forged through his incarnation, through his becoming a human being, that, he, that, that we will go into depths this morning, we will find a glimpse of human flourishing, of healing, of injustice that will be brought to justice, of compassion that will be found, oppression will cease, the power of God will be at work, and it should be beginning in the church. Now hear me out. The point of our faith and allegiance to Christ 
is not just to go to heaven. I've said this before. When we speak of Christian salvation or speak of being saved, we have developed in our American understanding of Christianity over time this understanding that the ends in heaven, the avoidance of hell. Of course, hell is real. The judgment of God is indeed coming, and eternal destinies are indeed at stake. I don't reject any of that by any means. But what I do reject is this salvation-only kind of centric approach to the good news of Jesus. Because as Christians, if we only have heaven in mind when we think of our faith, when we think of evangelism, when we think of our own salvation, Philippians 2 then won't quite fit into that box really easily. Because what we see is Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth in order that he may suffer for you and I. Now, don't forget that God created this world beautiful and good, and he wants to redeem humanity one person at a time with the intention of these pockets of redeemed people throughout the world, people in Christ, local expressions of the universal worldwide church, like Emmanuel, that we may live now differently, that we may live an upside-down sort of life, as we're going to see and visit in depth this morning. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that, like Jesus once did, perhaps the Christian church needs to get our minds out of heaven for a little bit and allow room in our hearts for this life and for this world here and now. Perhaps we need to remove some of the escapism mentality that can rise up of leaving this icky and dicky, dark, icky and uh, dark world to burn. And like Jesus, look up. Look at this world and know that it needs the good news of Jesus now. Now, Jesus gave up heaven for a time in order that he may see his precious humanity redeemed, saved from their sin, in order that one day when heaven meets earth on his second coming, that he will once and for all make all things new. And we pray that day come soon, Lord Jesus. But the job of the church is not to rescue people out of this world so they can go to heaven just after saying a prayer. No. Like Jesus, let's not look at the benefits of heaven as the only reason why we go to Christ. That's called hell insurance. That's not what he provides for us. Surely it's much bigger than that. Surely it's also better to be in heaven, as Paul admitted, as we admit, right? Of course, it's going to be better to be in heaven. But however, Jesus intentionally has carved out this path for Christians to live in this world, in this life now, because he wants you and me and us to be ambassadors for him today. He doesn't want you to escape it in the meantime and kind of stay bunkered down in hiding. When he wants you in heaven, he will bring your life to a close in his good timing. But he has a job for you, has a plan for you right now. So I want you to think of the story that we are going to read again as that path. A path that Jesus is begging for the soles of our feet to tread on, to join him on. Sadly, in many ways, it has become overgrown. If I can be so bold as to say, what we are about to read this morning is the reason why Jesus has called you to himself. This is the, this is the life, this is the patterns of those in his kingdom. This is the alternate path of living that he is inviting us to, to join him on. So there's a little bit of a roadmap for our remaining time together this morning. We will work verse by verse through the text, looking at specific ways in which Paul told the story of Jesus becoming a man and also his death and his subsequent exaltation 
and how he was directly confronting the faulty Roman worldview, the Roman paths that they had carved out, and how he was redirecting them to the paths of life in Christ. Then we are going to take it home to us and now see how it will look for the church today to fully embrace these paths, this invitation of Christ to join him on this upside-down kingdom living. So let's dive in. I'm excited. Verse 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In writing to this ancient Philippian uh, church, these Christians living in this Roman colony, there is another plea for unity. And the plea is found in Paul's reminding them that they are all in Christ. If they were in Christ, if they were to be sharing in the love of the Spirit, if they have compassion, if they share in sympathy among them due to their devotion to and being in Christ, Paul asks them, he says, complete my joy. Complete it because it's incomplete. You need to complete my joy by being of the same mind, sharing the same love, this idea of togetherness. We saw how last week there were divisions among them. We discussed in depth how the division was probably due to the sharp social divisions, the sharp, sharp social hierarchies that the Romans accepted as a standard way of living. Divisions of status, divisions of accepting, of the leveraging of their individual honors to gain more honor for themselves up and against others, even if it was done at the expense of those others. That was the Roman worldview, the Roman paths of life. But suddenly in Christ, a group of Romans living in the empire of various statuses were spending time together because Jesus had leveled that playing field. And suddenly they were faced with the, the nobles, the hierarchies, the patricians being with the ones on the lower rung of the ladder living in Christ together. And they were like, this is different. How is this going to work? How can we get along? And there was some division happening in the church. Now Paul goes deeper though. He, he gives us some of the nuts and bolts concerning their attitude and approach to one another. He asked them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, speaking directly to the accepted way of life for the Romans and the preservation of self, preservation of status, and their expansion of personal honor, and rather in humility to consider others as more important than themselves. Paul continued to dismantle and expose those Roman pathways of life further. He says, let each of you look not only after your own interests, but also to that of others. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we are all one in Christ. Like a surgeon, Paul is going in deep. He's, de he's dissecting the fraudulent Roman understanding of people, of human beings. He's allowing Christ, the true human, the son of man, that title simply means human being, to redefine this life that we are given. Sticking to the imagery that would have made sense to those of the Roman worldview, he continues on very boldly. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in a form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but him emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I can join with some voices that, um, that argue that the past hundred years or so, you know, all these Bible scholars that are smarter than, you know, will ever be, have uh, really approached this, I think, from the wrong perspective. They, they read this and they try to slice it into a thousand hundred pieces, try to understand the nuances of God becoming man. How did that happen? Did he set aside his divinity? Well, no, he couldn't have done that because he was the God-man. So what does Paul mean that he didn't consider being in the form of God something to be grasped? He was God. How does that work? And how do we understand all of this and maintain Christian orthodoxy? I think those are the wrong questions that Paul was not intending to ask. With a glance of the Roman culture of the day, it becomes clear that Paul is borrowing imagery that these early Christians would have understood that for us are a little foreign. We have to do our homework here to put ourselves in the worldview of the people receiving this letter in the first century. So let's put on our Roman hats. You ready? Or helmets, right? They wear hats. Probably wear helmets. Though he was in a form of God. It's kind of a unique Greek word that's used here. It's a reference to his appearance that would have represented his status as God. Basically, clothing and reputation were together, right? So others could see where you stood exactly in the Roman hierarchy of social values. The higher you were in the status in Rome, your form of appearance would have shown that for all to see. It would have been a way to live kind of braggadociously to your fellow Romans to reveal to them just where you were. Like, look at my garments, look at my toga. That's right. I'm a Roman citizen. Check it out. Yeah, that's me right? Jesus was in the form of God. He was clothed on high in heaven as God himself, and just by looking at him, you would have known. Read Revelation 1 and 2, and you will see the glory of Jesus Christ himself shining in all of his glory in the heavens. He was clothed in that way. Eyes of fire, hair white as wool, a sword coming out of his mouth. That's our risen Lord. That's what he was clothed with. He was God of the universe. But though he is who he is, he didn't say to himself, well, how can I use this for my own personal benefits like the Romans were taught to do? Rather, he unclothed his status, if you will. He took on the garments that would have belonged to a servant or a slave, as it literally says. Paul's imagery here is that God himself willingly cast aside even his reputation and honor as being known as God, not casting aside his divinity, but casting aside the glory and potential privileges that was due to him because of his divinity. And this was an unthinkable move, unthinkable to the Romans. It's like saying the emperor of Rome left his palace, took off his imperial garments, and dressed like the slave from the conquered peoples being sold in the marketplace down the street, or if he was standing right next to them, you wouldn't even know it's the emperor because he looks just like them. That's what's going on here. No one in Rome would willingly, willingly climb down the social ladder. And in this way, to return to our path metaphor, Jesus was creating new pathways for our human existence, new pathways for life. Jesus' ambition led him down, not upwards. It was still ambitious, 
right? Ambition's not wrong. It's just what direction is your ambition heading towards? It was down for him. It led him to become what was lowest in society in order that he may save all. And even more so, he didn't just take on the form of a slave, but became even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, making this passage perhaps even more shocking, even more absurd, as I'm going to show here in just a moment. I want to read something to you that will illuminate historically just how fascinating this is. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you have questions, or even if you are a Christian, you have doubts a Christian, you have doubts in your mind of like, ah, how do I know this stuff is true? How do I really know? One of the best apologetics for our faith is this. If you wanted to make up a new religion— in the ancient Roman world, you want to come up with something new out of just your brain. Say, oh, I don't know. New religion. What can we say? Let's make something up, right? If that's what you wanted to do, the idea of God taking the status of a slave and dying on the cross would have been the very thing not to do. It would have not have gathered a crowd to say, yeah, I want to do that. I want to join those people. No. It would have made no sense to this Roman world. Now listen, it would have been the most unpopular and unattractive message you could conjure up in the ancient world, but it happened because it's true. Now, I'm going to read this from Cicero, okay? He is a lawyer, an uh, ancient famous Roman lawyer. Maybe you heard of him. He was a contemporary from Paul. And I'm going to read you a little passage here. When he was a prosecution lawyer, okay, going after a Roman senator, because what was just found out about the senator was that while he was governor of Sicily, he had flogged and crucified a Roman citizen. Now listen to his prosecution, I guess, case, you can say, against this guy. Listen to what he says. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Again, this is the world that Christianity entered to to say, we are worshiping a guy who died on the cross. Keep that in mind as we read these words. This is Cicero speaking. And so in the middle of the forum in Masana, a Roman citizen was flogged. And the whole time while he suffered, while the whip cracked, no groan, no cry of any kind was heard from the tortured man except, I am a Roman citizen. And reminding Varus, that's the, um, the, 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 um, the guy that was crucifying him, reminding Varus of his citizenship, he thought that he would escape the beating. But when he kept crying out and demanding the rights of citizenship, Varus ordered his staff to make for this poor, tormented man, a cross. That's right, a cross. Gentlemen of the jury, this was the only cross ever set up in the part of Messana that overlooks the straits. Varus chose this spot with its view of Italy deliberately so that Gavius, the man who was being crucified, the Roman citizen, as he died in pain and agony, might recognize that the narrow straits marked the boundary between slavery and freedom. And so Italy might see her own son hanging there, suffering the most horrible punishment ever inflicted for slaves. To put a Roman citizen in chains is a wrong, to flog him is a crime, to execute him is almost parricide or the killing of a family member. And what shall I call crucifixion? So abominable a deed can find no word adequate enough to describe it. I actually had to invent a word, did you know this, to describe crucifixion, the pain that came from it. Asphyxiation was, had to be invented because when you hung on the cross, you couldn't breathe. 
right? Your body weight was hung on your hands. If you, if you do this, right, you lean, you can feel your lungs get pressure. Your whole body weight hangs. You couldn't breathe. You literally suffocated to death as you hung on the cross. They had to invent a word to describe the agony that would have experienced. What shall I call crucifixion? Some abominable deed. None of words are adequate to describe it. Oh, Varys, it was not some unknown man whom you tortured and crucified in that place, but the universally acknowledged correlation between freedom and Roman citizenship. So Varys did the unthinkable. He crucified a Roman citizen. In doing so, he committed the crime that could rob the whole of Roman citizens, those privileges to not be crucified, to not be treated like a slave. And Christianity arose in that world and said, Our God entered into human flesh, took on the garments of a slave of the lowest of society, submitted himself to the cross of his own free will, even with joy, as Hebrews says. This was a major stumbling block to the Romans. Yet these are the pathways that Christ has laid out for us. This is how healing is brought to us. God stooped down to take on flesh, to identify with us, to take on our sin that was not ours. And he died on the cross, identifying with even the lowliest of peoples. In this pathway, Jesus opened up the way for all of Roman society to be able to identify with Christ. Think about this. Even for us and all Americans, he opened up this story here that he can identify with every single person, wherever you may be. Are you a noble, a citizen, a Roman senator? Are you one of the highest rungs of society in American terms? Do you hold positions of power, accomplish great feats? Do you have a million Twitter followers, right? Do you have YouTube videos that have 100 million views or, or are, you, are you upper class? Whatever it is, right? It's kind of a silly example, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Jesus was God, clothed with divinity in the heavens, and he didn't consider any of it worthy enough to be exploited for his own gain. He knows what it's like to be on top. And being on top isn't bad. It's not a sin because God needs the right people to be on top, the right righteous people to be on top. And that's why we're commanded to pray all the time for our nation's leaders because it's very important who is there, right? But Jesus carved out the pathway with the attitude that even though I'm on top, this is not a position to exploit for my personal gain my personal position of power to gain at the expense of others, but rather I'm to use my high positions of privilege and power to serve others. Might I add that even the middle class of America is among the richest of the world? Even the middle class are kings and queens of this world in the wealth and possession and ease and comfort that is found in life in America? Is this to be yours for your own benefit? Or how can your status be used for the service of others like Christ? What about the rest? Are you poor? Are you lowly in society? On the bottom rungs, if you will. Jesus took on the garments of the lowliest, and he died the death worthy of a slave, the despised, the rejected of Roman society. He knows what it's like to have everything and then to have nothing. He knows what it's like to be in glory and to be humiliated. Maybe some of you right now in this room can identify. Maybe you lie as among the poor in society, having very little. Maybe you've experienced the humility of having to accept meal vouchers in the lunch line at school, knowing that some of your friends did not need those vouchers, but knew that you did. Or maybe even of recent, waiting in lines to just to get food, to hope your fridge is filled for the week. Maybe you know what it's like to have government health care and be treated by certain doctors as second-class citizens, 
Something my wife and I have experienced time and time again, not receiving near adequate care from professionals who were supposed to give it just because of the source of our health insurance. We've seen it firsthand. This pathway of Christ can identify all of us. He has forever leveled this playing field, revealing to all of humanity that none of these things effectively save you or even make you to be lost because we are all sinners in need of grace. And Jesus has thus entered into every one of these statuses to unite humanity in all things in him through faith, through allegiance to him. Do you see how this happens? Do you see how in creating a community of human beings filled with the spirit of Jesus at the center creates on this earth a group of humans who are no longer divided by things like social statuses, riches or poverty, achievements or failures, white skin or brown skin or ethnic identity, how Christ has forged this path that says, yes, I can identify with all of you. And I died for all of you. And in uniting you together in one body right now through faith in me, all of these things can be healed. And you are all to consider each other as more important than yourself and to care for one another, ensuring that all the things that divides the world apart can be cast aside. And now are rather seen as opportunities for serving and loving one another rather than dividing you apart. Do you see this? Far from an escapism mentality, this should be the result of a community of people who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And the effect of such a community of Christians living together within the larger community around them will result in a testimony to the work of Christ in our lives now, a testimony of invitation that says, come and know our Jesus See the forgiveness of the burdens of sin that weighs you down that he offers. See the community of healing that he has created amongst his new creation, his people from all walks of life who consider each other as more important than themselves, who are not afraid to take up each other's burdens and carry them. The community where the rich and the poor are dining together. The community where all skin colors are as one family, worshiping their Lord and loving one another. Come and see where politics and pandemics have not divided a group of people, but rather have united them. Is this not what our nation needs right now? Is this not what America needs at this moment right now? Do you see how this pathway of Jesus Christ is the way of life that we need? And don't you see how Christianity is more than a message, but a way of life? Say it one more time. Christianity is more than just a message. It is a way of life. This is the overgrown path that we need to be reminded of, that we need to stoop down and travel once again. May the soles of our feet stomp down the weeds of division and oppression and the riches and poverty and skin colors and political divisions and yell and scream to the world, come and see a redeemed community of Christians from all walks of life living together as a family. We all know the prayers of our Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You can finish it for me. On earth as it is in heaven. Now that is the job of the church to glimpse heaven on earth. These are the new paths of Christ. But we're not even done yet. Isn't that fun? There's still more to go. 
Since the Romans were so concerned with honor and gaining it, Paul shows them the true path of honor, the true path of exaltation. Jesus' obedience to identify with the lowly and the humiliating death on the cross led to the greatest honor imaginable. It's a very upside-down way of gaining honor. Verse 9, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His humiliation led to his exaltation. Therefore, is what to say as you read the Bible, a little Bible interpretive lesson here. If you see the word therefore, it's there for a reason. Ah, see how that works? Ah, that's right. Now you won't forget it. Therefore is therefore a reason. Jesus has received a name above every name. No name compares because of his willingness to be obedient to the humiliation of death on the cross. His death and resurrection has brought him to the place where he is not only seen as God, but as Lord. The title of Christ has within its meaning the, the, the position of king. And it should be noted that Jesus is not mentioned here as Savior, but rather as Lord, which is Paul's preferred title for Jesus. And right here, what he's saying by saying Lord is saying he's our Lord. He demands our obedience and our allegiance to him. In other words, it is perfectly acceptable to say this. This is my summary here. One day, because of his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, everyone in heaven and on earth, even those who lie within the earth, who will be brought to newness of life, will bend their knee to King Jesus, confessing that he is indeed Lord, to the glory of God the Father. No knee will be left straight. Everyone will bend their knee, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Friends, there is no one more powerful than Jesus. There is no one higher than our King, Jesus. He is Lord of lords, Lord of our lives right now and will be for all of eternity. Amen. As we close, I want to return for a few minutes to that imagery that I mentioned at the beginning of my childhood and those overgrown paths. Time and time again, we see Jesus in the Gospels inviting people to follow him. In doing so, he invites them to come and die, to be willing to pick up their own cross and to follow him. He says that everything is to be on the line just like it was for him. He says, well, this is not a popular way of saying it, but it's quoting scripture. We have to do something with this. In the Bible, we got to do something with it. Listen to this. When the wee little man of Zacchaeus, if you grew up in church, you know what that's a reference to, a wealthy man on the higher rungs of society met Jesus. Right? He met him. And he was different. Like, instantly. One of those salvations where it's just like, boom, everything changes like one minute to the next. Like, boom, maybe you had that experience your own life. Mine was a progression. For this man, Zacchaeus, it was this immediate change. You know what he did? <clears throat> he immediately said, who can I pay back that I've exploited over the years? For he was a tax collector, and they regularly exploited people for their own gain. He says, I gotta pay them all back. I just met Jesus. I know what I've done. I gotta pay them all back. Not just paying back, but paying back fourfold. You know his response was? Salvation has come to this house. But wait, we never saw Zacchaeus pray the sinner's prayer. How could Jesus see his actions and say salvation has come? Because Jesus became his Lord. He became his ultimate love. 
when, he, when we gain a new Lord, whom we love above everything else, we are compelled to say, do with me as you please, Lord. No, we're not saved by works, but as James says, our faith is shown by our works. Zacchaeus is that example for us, right? Believing and doing are not to be separated. As we are given Philippians 2 as an invitation to a pathway, this new pattern of living, say, you believe in me? Great, I have a new path of life for you to walk on. Come and follow me. And that is why I like this path analogy. Overgrown paths take time to stomp down. It doesn't happen in just a few steps. It takes usually months, maybe even years, decades, a lifetime. This is a call to a new life in Christ. As Eugene Peterson said, it is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I'll be honest, it is not going to be easy. It is not going to be something fast. It is not a running with the horses, but a slow walk along the same path for a long time. I want to be here for the long haul, Lord willing. I am not seeking for quick and flashy results here of growth at Emmanuel. This is a long road of joining Christ along this path of humility, of considering others as more important than ourselves. It will require us to be a community that is willing to face relational hurts and pains among us, not to avoid them, but with the grace of forgiveness. Embrace the casting off of past hurts and walking forward together as a forgiven people in grace united. It will require us to be a community of people who look to their city and to their corner of the neighborhood, all of it, and become people willing to open up this beautiful building we have and allow it to get worn out and trampled down with traffic from our city, knowing that anything we have is only to be open-handedly given over to Jesus and for others and not just for ourselves. Something to leverage to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and the love of him to all around us. It will be a community of imperfect husbands serving and loving their wives and family with all of their hearts who are willing to give themselves up to their family as Christ did for his church. All of themselves in love and service and in humility, not considering themselves as more important than any of them and considering their family is more important than even the afternoon baseball game. It will be wives being willing to submit themselves to their husbands and family that if they were not there and they were not doing so would indeed cause their own family to perish, as Genesis 2 strongly teaches us. It is a community of men and women, young and old, looking for ways to love and serve one another, continually meeting each other's needs and making their own needs known without shame. If you have needs this morning, don't be ashamed of that. Make them known. People around you want to meet them. It will be a community of people looking outward to their city, seeking out the dark places, the sad corners, the places of brokenness and like Jesus, being willing to enter into it with our wallets, with our hands, and more importantly, with our hearts. It is an invitation to the Spirit of God to do the work of humble love among us. And I invite him to bring renewal and revival here. And I want, hear me clear, I want it to be a renewal and revival of love. A revival of humility, a revival of meekness, and even of weakness towards each other. For what I see in Christ is a story of immeasurable love, 
of immeasurable humility, of immeasurable meekness. And may we lead the way in joining Christ on this path, treading it over and over and over again in its overgrown places, stomping down those weeds for a long obedience in the same direction. Let us pray. Jesus, um, thank you for you. Lord, you are a gift. The greatest gift we could have ever known. The gift that we could never imagine that we even needed. There's no other hope in this world aside from you. Thank you, Lord, that you do not call us to have to work out our salvation as if we have to do a certain amount of deeds to be saved. But Lord, with simple faith, as you know from the thief on the cross, we can be saved. But Lord, unless we are on our deathbed, unless it's one moment to the next of a confession of faith that we pass away into heaven, Lord, we are here right now. And we have a job to do, Lord. There's a hurting world out there. And you chose to enter it. You left the most glorious place imaginable. And you entered into one of the darkest places imaginable in order that you might redeem it. And Lord, as we are just a small pocket of redeemed people here in the city of Wilmington and people driving from different regions and areas and even different states just to get here, Lord, to be a part of this community, Lord, we are ambassadors of heaven. We are to be a glimpse of heaven on earth. And so, Lord, would you give us the grace to, to learn how to do this, Lord, together? Would you give us the grace and the empowerment from your spirit to live this out, Lord? Lord, your love, you told us to me years ago, your love will never decrease for us, but Lord, it will never increase also. It is maxed out on us, and we are so thankful. May our love be the same. May it be maxed out in you above everything else, Lord, in this world. May you be our Lord, may you be our King, and may this church be known as the church that loves its community, that is unafraid of preaching the good news of Jesus to those who need it, unafraid of sharing the gospel, that you are calling us to repent of our sins and turn to you for everlasting life, but also not afraid to get our hands dirty, not afraid to stoop down to those who need you the most and to serve them. Rich or poor, white or black, regardless of who they are, Lord, may we be a church that reaches out to all of them, Lord. For you want to redeem all of them. We love you, Jesus. Be with us throughout our week. And I even pray ahead of time for a time Wednesday night, Lord. Just one step in the direction of becoming a, a stronger relational community here, kind of trying to resurge that ever since COVID hit and things kind of stopped, Lord, different meetings. And Lord, as we enter back into this, Lord, kind of maybe a smaller group of people for a more focused time of fellowship together in prayer. Please meet us Wednesday night, Lord. May this just be one step of this long obedience in the same direction that we together can do this, Lord. So Holy Spirit, please fill us. Please be with us, Lord. We can't do any of this without your help. We can't do any of it in our own strength. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. Amen.